Welcome to Sparks of History. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Rabbi Pitti Dunner. Rabbi Dunner began his rabbinic career in Russia as the assistant rabbi in Moscow's iconic Boral Synagogue. Rabbi Dunner later served as a rabbi in London and in 1998 presided over the launch of the innovative Sachi Synagogue for young Jewish professionals in London's West End. Currently, Rabbi Dunner is the senior rabbi of the Beverly Hills Synagogue in California. Rabbi Dunner also serves on the Executive Committee of the Rabbinical Council of America, the RCA, and on the board of the Israel Christian Nexus, an interfaith organization focusing on cross-communal advocacy and support for Israel. Rabbi Dunner is a noted author. His works include Mavericks, Mystics, and False Messiahs, episodes from the margins of Jewish history, and Hearts and Minds 1 and 2, 2 being a fairly recent release, uh, which is an original look at Jewish festivals and significant Jewish dates. Rabbi Dunner, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it very much. I appreciate that a glowing introduction. I must speak to you more often. Absolutely. Anytime. Anytime. We're, we're known for our glowing introductions. Um, just to get started, um, your impressions regarding your recent missions, trips to Israel uh, after the brutal massacre of October 7th on Simchat Torah, what were your general impressions? What stood out? And what were some of the messages that you brought back to your community in um, L.A., Beverly Hills? Well, firstly, um, I've been three times to Israel since uh, October 7th. I'm going to talk about each of those separately uh, because each of them was quite different. Each of the visits was quite different. Um, but before that, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the makeup of my community in Los Angeles because Los Angeles is uh, a world away from Eretz Yisrael. Uh, Beverly Hills in particular, some might think is a world away even from Los Angeles. So uh, our community is uh, devoted to Israel and Israeli causes uh, and to the furtherance of Judaism and Jewish life and Jewish culture uh, in a way that many Israelis never quite get. And I know that you're not a born Israeli, but when you meet Israelis who are born in Israel, first, second, third generation, their sense of American Jewry and the diaspora is of being somewhat distant from the values and the ideas and ideals of Israel, of Eretz Israel, Medinat Israel. Uh, and they're always fascinated by the fact that people who live so far away from Israel make Israel such a central component of their lives. Uh, and I have to tell you that this is something that cuts across the board, because while there is a lot of uh, um, dissent and dissension, disagreement, controversy in Israel between different factions and communities, let's say between the Dati'im, Umi'im, and uh, Chilonim, uh, Haredim, uh, all the different sections, and, and as vibrant as they are, because some of the, they constantly knocking against each other, and there's tension between these communities uh, on the values that they hold dear and those that they consider to be, uh, um, you know, not as valuable, let's, let's put it that way. Uh, when you come to the diaspora, you don't sense that at all. It's across the board, and I'm going to give it to you in the following way. Over the past two days at my shul, 
Um, there's a division of uh, an organization called Stand With Us. Stand With Us was set up 22 years ago. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, they have a wonderful uh, uh, representative in Israel called Michael Dixon, who has a British accent like me. Um, that's why he's so eloquent, of course. And uh, Stand With Us, it was an organization that was set up as a result of the Intifada to uh, fight anti-Semitism, particularly to give people tools to enable people to fight anti-Semitism um, at times when it exploded as a result of something that was going on in Israel, um, uh, maybe a war, maybe an intifada, whatever it was. And Roz Rothstein, together with her husband Jerry, who were the founders, together with a lady called Esther Rensa, uh, imagined that this would be a volunteer organization that would last six months, a year, and once they set things up, they could go on with their lives and do what they've done, uh, um, what they had done so far. Uh, 22 years later, they're still presiding over the same organization and never has it been more needed uh, than it has been since October 7th. Now, Rabbis United is a division which federates rabbis from across denominations um, to, to give them the tools to help them with their communities. Now, I hosted at my synagogue, uh, Beverly Hill Synagogue, which is a young Israel uh, a convention of 50 rabbis from across the United States. We had from the East Coast, from the Midwest, from, uh, you know, Washington State, from all across California. Um, we had rabbis of all denominations, Reform, Conservative and Orthodox, sitting in a room uh, together, learning together and sharing our experiences uh, as we have seen them and as we have experienced them since October 7th. And, and this is the point I wanted to make. There was zero tension. And, I, I, you know, I'm not sure if we were having a theological discussion that we would agree on almost anything. But when it comes to the state of Israel, and when it comes to supporting the state of Israel and battling anti-Semitism in the United States, and particularly anti-Zionism, and those who are pro-Palestinian who spend their lives fighting Jews, not necessarily Israelis or Israel supporters, just Jews, there was zero dissent. We are all together, united as one, with absolutely no differences whatsoever. And uh, it was, it, it's, a, it's an incredible bond that Israelis don't often understand that the, uh, the communities in America that support Israel are so incredibly strong in their support that they're willing to set aside their differences in order to make sure that that support is sustained. Now, I know that in Israel there has been unity since October 7th, although I, I, I note the cracks that are beginning to appear. Uh, the, but, you know, in, in a sense, in Israel, it's you're under siege and you need to unite in order to beat back the common enemy. Uh, it's quite different in America because we're not under siege in quite the same way. And, of course, there's there's been much more anti-Semitism and online the battle rages. But there's no reason necessarily for us to to join forces. We could do whatever we do in our own synagogues and communities without collaboration. But we feel that collaboration is important in and of itself. And we extend that. You mentioned in that glowing introduction, which we mentioned earlier, you mentioned that I am on the board of the Israel Christian Nexus. Um, and so we stretch that collaboration, not just to Jewish communities with whom we differ, 
but also into Christian communities um, with, with whom we share the bond of a love of Israel and a belief that the return of the Jewish diaspora to Israel was biblically foreseen and prophesied and that we are there for a purpose because we live in a messianic era and we are all looking forward to the Bias Goel Tzedek Bimhera Biomenu. That's what we're doing. Now, they may have another idea as to who that Messiah might be, but, but either way, we see Israel as the realization of prophecy. So that really is the backdrop to the various uh, visits that I have had to Israel since October 7th. Now, I, you know, I live in Los Angeles, which just for those who you don't know who are watching this, um, I live in Los Angeles, which is a 14 hour flight from uh, to get to Israel, 14 hours, which means if you leave, which is if the flight leaves every day, the LR flight leaves at 2 p.m., you arrive at 2 p.m. the following day. It's also a 10 hour time difference. That's a full day travel. Uh, it's not easy. And yet the flights are packed every single day. There's a daily flight. There's almost never a seat available on those flights. And uh, the, you could put and, probably and the, and the tickets are not inexpensive. And they, they are not inexpensive, as you so um, very delicately put it. They're not inexpensive. And they are full in all classes every single day. That is a testament to the love of Eretz Yisrael that is felt by American Jews and Christians whose devotion to Israel and to its survival is unbreakable and unshakable. That's, so that was Before by, we get by, to, the, to the missions, Los Angeles, California has this reputation, obviously. You know, it's, it's a country, it's a progressive liberal country unto its own. Now, it is a country, you know, it has the, I think, the fifth largest economy in the world, in the world. just California, the state of California. Correct. So, so how has the Jewish community, after October 7th, dealt with um, the, the progressive liberal groups and elements, um, the, the allies of, of, of many in the Jewish community that might not be that supportive of Israel today? Has has that tension or has that come to the surface? It certainly has. Uh, I think that Northern California is very different than Southern California. So if you live in Oakland or San Francisco or any of the areas around Silicon Valley, I think the progressive um, elements there are much more vocal um, and aggressive in their progressiveness. And uh, I think it's been very difficult for Jewish communities there who are lovers of Israel and supporters of the state of Israel to make their voices heard. Um, in Southern California, it's not quite as bad. Yes, people are uh, supporting. I mean, I'm going to turn it political, but I, I'm, I'm not saying this for political reasons. They are, you know, it's a, it's a Democrat state and Democrats generally lean in the direction of not being pro-Israel right now. I mean, not yet reflected entirely in their representatives in Congress, but you know, who knows how that's going to unfold in the years ahead. But the grassroots in the Democrats, Democratic Party is, is not supportive of Israel in the same way as the Republicans are. 
uh, and it's a democratic state. Although, interestingly enough, I discovered this only two weeks ago, uh, that California has the most, uh, the highest number of registered Republicans of any state in the country, uh, which is interesting, isn't it? Considering that, you know, there's a Republican has no chance here to, for high office. I mean, there's many districts which have Republican congressmen, but, you know, the, the governor of California, it's almost impossible to conceive that the governor would ever be uh, a Republican anymore. The last one was Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't think that's going to happen again. And certainly the senators are never going to be uh, are going to be um, Republicans. Another interesting factoid for you, the two most fascinating places to visit within the Los Angeles region, uh, that means in Southern California, are the presidential libraries of Richard Nixon, in your Belinda and uh, and the Reagan Library, which is in Calabasas, both of them Republicans from California, so it's of a bygone age, and both of them very supportive of Israel. I mean, if, if not for Richard Nixon, I'm not sure that Israel would have survived the Yom Kippur War. And that was despite the advice or the, uh, you know, the machinations of Henry Kissinger, who was his secretary of state. But for some reason, he had a fondness for Israel. Uh, and uh, that began really the huge amounts of money and military aid that Israel has received uh, ever since for more than 50 years. That began in the era of Richard Nixon. Um, but to come back to your point, yes, we have encountered pushback. And in particular, I live in Beverly Hills and in, in the Hollywood area. Um, and in Hollywood, there has not been broad support for Israel. But what's interesting is there hasn't been broad criticism of Israel either. Um, whereas in the past, we have seen you know, a lot of political statements from people in the showbiz industry. Uh, now it's, it's not been quite the same. Uh, and those who have spoken up have been washed up actors, Susan Sarandon and uh, there was uh, another fellow, an actor, who spoke up, uh, John Cusack. Uh, these are not, they're not considered to be mainstream. They're certainly not A-listers anymore. The A-list celebrities have, have avoided making statements about Israel against or for uh, since October 7th. So in a sense, we've been spared in Southern California from the worst excesses of the progressive um, campaign um, which has been pro-Hamas and pro-terrorists, pro-Palestinian, um, you know, pro-ceasefire now, whatever you're going to refer to it as, we've been spared. What is interesting is the, uh, is the reaction of the Jewish community to this progressive wokeism, because that is something um, that they weren't expecting. People have lost friends. Uh, it reminds me of the era of 2016-17 uh, when Trump won the election and it, it split families down the middle. Those who said, well, Trump's not that bad and he's pro-Israel and whatever it is. And those who were just horrified that uh, somebody like Donald Trump could be the president of the United States. Uh, and there was this unbelievable uh, divisions in families and in communities of those who supported Trump and those who hated Trump, you're now seeing an interesting kind of realignment because there's people in the Jewish community who imagined that their progressive 
liberal friends would remain their friends in the wake of October 7th and perhaps even be sympathetic to the plight of Israelis or the threat to Israelis and Israel from those who wish to annihilate uh, that country. Uh, and they've discovered that anti-Semitism is bubbling very close to the surface, not just on the far right, but on the, on the left as well. And that has been a shock to the system. And we've seen, I, I heard it over the last couple of days with the rabbis from the conservative and the reform communities who were with us, that there's been an unbelievable uptake. Somebody told somebody told us that they have a religious school, I guess a Sunday school of, you know, some type of Hebrew class that they run in their conservative or reform temple, and that there's been an unbelievable increase in interest in enrolling children into Hebrew school because they feel that their Jewish identity is suddenly more powerful than their political affiliations, and they want to associate themselves with the Jewish community. Isn't that wonderful? So... Uh, I, I do think that's, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, it's not quite as bad as being painted. You know, I, we had our own incident in Beverly Hills where a member of our community was had an anti-Semitic attack on his way to Shul on Shabbat. It was reported around the world. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, uh, we see uh, support and we see that the uh, what uh, Richard Nixon, to mention him again, used to refer to as the silent majority of, I'm going to call them, normal Americans are not uh, on the side of, of woke progressives and uh, regard all this violence, um, this pro-Palestinian violence and aggressive protests um, with disdain and disgust. Getting back to the missions, I know we sidetracked a little bit. Again, your, your takeaways, impressions, and, and messages that you brought back to, um, so to I told you there was three three yes. visits. My first visit wasn't actually a, a mission. We had we had a member of our community, Ernie Goldberger, who died a few weeks after Simchas Torah, and he was he fought in Palmach. He was a Holocaust survivor from Hungary. Um, he made his way to Israel during the Second World War. Um, joined up the, with the Palmach fought in 1947, 48, 49, was badly wounded, and for his recovery eventually ended up in the United States, became extremely successful, and was a backbone of the community here in, uh, uh, in Los Angeles, and eventually in Beverly Hills. He was a founding member of my community, and uh, he passed away. He was, he was 96 years old, and we brought him to Israel to be buried. It was his last wish to be buried in Israel. It was three, four weeks into into the uh, war. Well, after October 7th, or just after the war had started, uh, and we came to Israel, and I, I wrote it, I wrote about it, and I was very taken at that moment in time with the latent shock that still hadn't dissipated. People were still in a state of shock. Uh, you know, three, four weeks after the war started. They weren't quite sure what to make of it. Uh, and, and we were also numb in the diaspora. And I came and I, I met with a few people, very interesting people. Um, you know, I'm, I, I have a good friend called Yigal Karman, who was a colonel in, in intelligence, uh, who runs an organization called Memory, which everybody knows, M-E-M-R-I, that translates 
Arabic TV uh, clips to show you what they're actually saying, not what they say in English, um, but what they say in Arabic to each other. And I was discussing with him. I met him at that time uh, and others because we were all in a state of shock. How do we react to this, um, which we thought was an impossible thing to happen, that Hamas, which is, as we had imagined, a ragtag bunch of um, you know, self-proclaimed freedom fighters stuck in Gaza behind an, imp you know, an impregnable, uh, impenetrable fence that was protecting Israel. And suddenly they, they, they did this terrible thing. How was it even possible? So at that stage, you know, I, I found Israel not ready to really um, be what it needed to be. Uh, that was my sense that people were still in such a state of shock. They were looking for some kind of stability in their narrative that hadn't quite got there yet. Um, I came a few weeks later, and this time I came with a group of reform and conservative rabbis as part of a Jewish Federation trip. Um, the LA Jewish Federation has organized it. And at that point in time, we went to Kfar Aza, um, and we went to a, a Bedouin village that various of members of the village had been killed, actually, by Hamas terrorists, and some of them were kidnapped. Um, and we met with the parents of hostages. Uh, you know, the hostage crisis was still, was still numb from it. And in America, people were ripping down the posters and the pictures of, of hostages. And it was, again, you know, very shocking to meet the parents. Um, I felt at that stage that Israel was very, was resolute. They knew what needed to be done and they were ready to do it. And everybody was, was completely devoted to the task at hand. We need to rebuild. Uh, we need to make sure that when well, we met, for example, residents from Netivah Sarah, um, uh, who were at that stage housed in a hotel not far from Jerusalem near Telstone. Um, and it was very shocking to hear their take on things, but all of them said, we need to get back. We want to go back home. We don't want to be here. We don't want to be temporary residents of a hotel supported by the government. Uh, we want to be masters of our own destiny, and we want the army to do whatever it needs to do in order to make sure that we can move back to our homes, which, which was amazing. Um, so there was that resolute aspect to it. Um, the third mission was with members of our community, and we saw um, that a, a new change, a country that is prepared for the long haul. There is a realization in Israel that this war, even when there is a day after, is not over. I'm not even sure what the day after means. I know they're now discussing a ceasefire uh, over Ramadan, but I, I, you know, the, what I was hearing was that this is a war that's going to be ongoing for quite some time, even if there's no guns firing and no rockets coming in from Gaza, uh, because we need to make sure that we secure our borders. You cannot have a country which has no borders um, and which, you know, where people don't feel safe close to the border. It, it's, it's inconceivable. You know, there's nobody 
um, there's nobody who would want to live in a country where that uh, where that is the case. And um, so, you know, three very different um, experiences as far as I was concerned and three visits that I've had to Israel. I'm coming again um, after Pesach and uh, I'm expecting things will be changed again. It's a fluid situation. I'm sure that you recognize many of the things I'm saying, but it's a fluid situation. Absolutely. As a writer on, on Jewish history, uh, where, do you, where do you think, Rabbi, that the current events fit in into the patterns of, of Jewish history? Is, is this a turning point in, in terms of where the state of Israel is going, where Israel-American Jewry relations are, where Israel-American relations are going? And from a practical point of view and theologically where do you how do you fit this in you've obviously written a lot about history and a lot of the quirky parts of if if that's the right word the mavericks and false messiahs where do you think this fits in theologically i think we're living in prophetic times so think of ezekiel yecheskel Yeshaya, Isaiah, um, the minor prophets, Micah, uh, you know, think of how they wrote in these prophetic terms about end of days scenarios and um, how things will appear drastically bad, even as the prize is so tantalizingly close. Uh, you know, in that in that respect, uh, you know, I, I think I, I very much subscribe to the um, vision. I'm not speaking about in terms of Ruach HaKodesh, but the vision of Rav Puk. And I'm not saying he got everything right, but he got the vision thing right. The vision thing is very important. And I think that there were many Gadolim in his uh, era who didn't have that vision thing, who were thinking in practical terms. They were thinking still in terms of Shtadlonus to the Goyim. And, you know, this is just another blip in history and Zionists are just another enemy to overcome and all of that type of thing. I think he saw things very much more broadly and understood that the Zionists, even if they didn't understand it themselves, were tools of God determining history. Uh, and in the same way, I mean, I, I don't know if you've read uh, the book by Rab Druckmann, Kimma Kimma, it's been translated into English. Um, and he talks about all these uh, biblical uh, anti-heroes uh, who seem, in, in a sense, to be uh, dreadful people. King Achov, dreadful person. And yet he presided over incredible successes. God was on his side. And, and he had no sense of it, perhaps, himself. And he was evil in many respects. And at the same time, he was an instrument of God's will. And I think that that's what we're witnessing today, that and I'm speaking in, in theological terms. We're seeing that those who created Israel and those who run Israel are instruments of God's will, because never has there been more Jewish spirit, uh, more enthusiasm for our destiny as Jews uh, and more hope for the future. And I know that the national anthem of Israel is Hatikva, but it, Putting that aside, I'm, I don't want to turn it into something political. 
the concept of tikva in Judaism was not something which was which was widely pronounced in in history over the past two thousand years. We always spoke about survival. How are we going to get through the next generation? How are we going to make sure that there's no pogroms? That's the way we looked at things. Yes, and now we're still facing pogroms, but we don't think in terms of protecting ourselves from the next pogrom. We see this as a grand project. The state of Israel, the land of Israel, is not some you know, community. It's not Krakow or, or Casablanca. It is Jerusalem. It is Hebron. It's Tiberia. It's all the great sites of biblical history that we are now we now preside over. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we are, you know, preparing the pathway for Elio Hanobi and for Mashiach. And we see it right there in front of us. And by the way, that's when I speak to my Christian friends, the lovers of Israel, they see it so much more clearly than we do. And we we must break out of our little uh, you know, what we consider to be existential crisis, you know, how are we going to deal with the next six months? No, no, it's not about the next six months. It's about the next epoch, because these are epoch-breaking times. So if, who, if who, who are, who are my our prophets today? Who are our prophets not? today? I mean, who are our prophets today? Where are the prophets going to come from? Or is it that the events are so prophetic? I think the that... event, yes, I think the events are prophetic. I think the events are so profound and so obviously God-driven. You know, the, the, the idea that the Jewish people would be in control of their land, of their country, um, and even the incredible opposition to that. Think, think about the fact that we are accused of being colonizers in our own land. How ridiculous. It's bizarre. Why would Jewish people, if you, if you do any archaeology in the land of Israel, now I'm a student of history, I have a history degree. There's no archaeologist who will find any Arabic inscriptions in the land of Israel beyond a thousand years ago. And yet Hebrew, Hebrew inscriptions from two and a half thousand years ago, just have to go to the archaeological digs around Jerusalem, uh, you know, it's just so obvious that our association with this land, that we are the indigenous nation of the land of Israel. That who can argue with that? And yet we are accused of being colonialists. So the, the, the nature of that is such that we have to see that this is Satan. This is Satan's work. This is the devil at play. That people who accuse us of being colonizers are agents of Satan and trying to distract us from the truth or to make us unsure of ourselves. So the, the, oppo the opposition to... is a theological proof for what you're saying. I mean, the opposition is a proof. It's, it's a, Correct. it's a devar the, the It's a thing, it's the, a thing the in the its opposite. There is this vehement, aggressive opposition to Jews being in Israel means that we are the agents of God. We have to understand that, and we must never shy away from it. We must be proud of it and stand up and say it openly in every forum and with with great pride and with great confidence. Our place, the land, the country where we belong, where we have always belonged, is the land of Israel. 
We've never belonged anywhere else. When we lived in Poland, we were outsiders. When we lived in Germany, even when we were deeply embedded in German culture so that we were the poets and that we were the politicians and we were drivers of who knows what, we were never part of Germany. We're not part of the United States. I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm a citizen of the U.K. I'm, I, I'm, I, uh, I am an Ezrach of the land of Israel. I don't have an Israeli passport, but I know where my place is. I belong in the land of Israel, and the land of Israel belongs to me. History has proven it time after time. My father would tell me, my late father, Zuchrona Livrocha, would tell me that when he was a kid in school in London, and anti-Semites would attack them on their way home from school, they would say, go back to Palestine. Not go to Palestine, go back, go back to Palestine. That is your country. What are you doing here in England? You don't belong here. Now we're being told to leave Palestine because we reclaimed the land that was ours. Now, there were people living there. There were inhabitants. They were squatters. It didn't belong to them, but they've been squatters there for hundreds of years, however long they've been there. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's greater experts than me that can speak to that particular fact. But they were squatters. They belong there as long as they accept that the indigenous people of the land of Israel are the Israelites, as we were referred to for centuries. That's how we were referred to by the Catholic Church, as Israelites, because that's where we belong. So I see this as an existential uh, trial, an existential struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Does the work um, that you've been doing with Christian groups extend today or could be extended to um, Muslim groups? Is the Abrahamic Accord a, a paradigm for that? And or do you see it's 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 not so simple if you look perhaps at uh, Qatar and and what they're doing, uh, trying to be a part of the, the Western alliance, but at the same time supporting terrorism? Where, where do you see all this fitting in um, with the Islamic groups? So I don't think it's a complicated question or even a complicated answer. Okay. Um, for centuries, Christians, um, Christians were vehemently opposed to Jews and hated them and would do anything they could to kill them, eliminate them, humiliate them, um, persecute them. That was a central theme of the Christian faith. Uh, I don't think... I could be wrong. I just simply don't know if I'm wrong. But, you know, it's certainly not wouldn't is not if I don't know it, it's not widely known. I'm not aware of any Christian who would kill for their faith today as part of a movement. There may be individual, you know, people with mental health issues. But as as a faith, Christianity has become much more benign. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't Christ Christian anti-Semites. There are. There's people who really, in the Christian faith, who really despise Jews and Judaism, and particularly within the Catholic faith. But it's not just, uh, um, you know, it's exclusive to Catholics. But I don't believe that they would do anything about it. They're not forming terrorist groups that are seeking out Jews to destroy them. 
Okay, so I think that that's very clear. In addition to which, there has been a realization among many Christians that their persecution or hatred of Jews was just a wrong move because we share many values and we share many ideals. And in essence, we are all hoping for the same thing, which is uh, a messianic era in which humanity can live at peace with each other and uh, with great faith in God. That's we have we share the same hopes for humanity with Christianity in that sense. If even if we disagree in terms of dogma uh, with Christians, broadly speaking, we aim for the same thing. So there's many Christians who see it, who see Jews not as a threat, but as partners, even if there's disagreements as partners towards an important cause. The same cannot be said of the Islamic world. The Islamic world hasn't yet matured in those terms. And there's still, and you're talking about a billion people. So even if it's a, a fairly small fraction of them, it's still huge numbers. The, the, the animosity towards Jews and, by the way, towards Christians is huge. And even as they say, you know, their scholars say, we include uh, Jewish holy men and and uh, events in our Quran, and we include Jesus and Christianity in our Quran. The fact is that Jews and Christians are regarded as uh, uh, as not worthy uh, and certainly not equal to Muslims in any way, shape, or form. Now, those who practice their Islam in a milder form have come to the realization, and they have somewhat matured, have come to the realization that the world is broader than just their Muslim community. And in order to get on in the world and to realize their dreams as human beings and as people of faith, one has to cooperate with other faiths, uh, which includes the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, and I'm assuming the Hindu faith and all the other faiths that exist. Uh, and that being the case, they are willing to, uh, you know, to look aside or look away from some of the more radical teachings within their faith in order to accommodate partnerships with, and in the case of Israel, with Jews and with Jews living in their ancestral homeland. Uh, that's a new, uh, that's a new phenomenon. It's a, you know, it's something that didn't really exist a hundred, even a hundred years ago. And not 50 years ago, it's, it's something that's only really begun to emerge in the last 20 years. And it's still on very rocky ground. Uh, it's not on a firm footing at all. And it probably has hundreds of years to develop. Listen to what I'm saying. Hundreds of years. It's not something that's going to happen in, in, in the next five years or 10 years. It's hundreds of years to uh, allow a faith like the Islamic faith to evolve to a place where it can be like the Christians are today with Jews and Muslims, that they can accept them for who they are, not hate them and want to kill them. That's going to take a long time. And there will be moments where we think all problems have been resolved. And there will be moments where we think that the, you know, the clock has turned back and it couldn't possibly be darker. And um, I think that's one of the moments that we're in at the moment where uh, Islamic radicals and their uh, foolish uh, partners in the West have the upper hand. 
that will change again. I have no doubt, a doubt, you know, with every recession, you always hear people say, don't worry, there's always an end to the recession. You know, good times follow bad times. And I do believe in that. The good times will follow these bad times and the Abraham Accords will get back on track. But there will no doubt be uh, hurdles and bumps and difficulties and challenges in the future, which will equal, uh, tragically equal October 7th in one way or another. Uh, and it's a learning curve for those who practice the Islamic faith. They need to, like we did, you know, Chazal took some of um, the harsher elements of Torah Shabbat and turned them into Torah Shabbat uh, And, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, um, we know that, for example, there are many capital crimes for which people should um, get capital punishment. And Chazal said, we don't do it. Uh, you know, Rabbi Kiva said somebody who kills, uh, Beisdin that kills once in seven, maybe once in 70 years, is considered a murderous Beisdin. That's not to say that the crimes, I'm talking about the faith crimes that were committed, were not worthy of capital punishment, but they were the, the rules and regulations that were put in place for the judiciary in those days were such that the likelihood of an outcome of capital punishment was very limited indeed. So, I think that that hasn't quite happened in the Islamic world, and therefore they're not quite at that stage. So the Abraham Accords is a flash of light in in a in a broad um, environment of darkness, uh, and that darkness we need to continue to shine that light. And those people who are willing to spread that light need to be celebrated and need to be uh, rewarded. Uh, for being willing to spread that light. But there will be plenty of uh, of uh, Islamic fundamentalists who will battle that until their last breath and will do everything they can to turn the clock back uh, so that uh, we live back in the Middle Ages. Qatar is one of those countries. Qatar is an evil regime. It's one small family, the Altani family, um, who pretend to be Western, but it's all fake. Uh, they are Islamic fundamentalists who support the Muslim Brotherhood, who willingly paid for Hamas to uh, build those tunnels under Gaza, who trained uh, Hamas operatives who were the murderers of October 7th, who continue to defend them in the West uh, whilst masquerading as neutral uh, party as a neutral party, as as they refer to themselves as honest brokers, they're not honest at all, and they're certainly not brokers. Uh, their sympathy lies with Hamas and with the Muslim Brotherhood and with the most um, evil and pernicious elements of the Islamic faith. So Qatar is a good example of of a a wolf in sheep's clothing. And we must be very cautious about doing anything alongside them or with them until they have, uh, you know, changed their narrative from the one that they are marching to right now. In conclusion, Rabbi Donner, um, the the Purim story. What do you take out of the Purim story? Maybe just one thought as it relates to current events. I think the most Remarkable element of the story of the Purim story is Achashverosh. He's not focused on a lot. Haman is evil. He's, he's easy, you know. We, we all need a, a villain. 
and Mordechai and Esther are the goodies in the script. Ashverosh is an interesting person because at one point in the story, he is the evil villain in, in cahoots with Haman. And later on, he becomes the sponsor of Mordechai. Um, you know, he's married to Esther. He has his motivations, which are not necessarily pure, but he becomes a hero because he enables the Jewish people to survive. And in fact, we know that ultimately uh, the descendants of Mordechai and Esther were the ones who moved to Eretz Yisrael with Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuilt the promised land. So I think that we must look at some of our enemies in, in a different way. They could be Achashverosh. Right now they are our enemies and you know we can't see any good in them because they are in cahoots uh, with uh, the most evil elements of the world has to offer but in the future they could be our partners in a path towards peace and prosperity and uh, a world that's a, a much more uh, a, a tolerant place so we don't know who those Ahasuerus are but they're there and we must look for them and when we find them we must uh, we must walk in lockstep with them so that we can ensure that the world in the future will indeed be a better place. Okay. On, the, on that note, um, thank you so much, Rabbi Donner, for your inspiring words and for all of uh, the work that you do on behalf of uh, the Jewish people in Israel. And you should continue to go from chayot to chayot, from strength to strength. Thank you so much. I appreciate what you're doing, Ari, and I, I do hope that all your listeners, your viewers, will enjoy our little chat. And I wish them all a Purim Sameach. And in Hashem, we should uh, all be zeicher to the Geula Shalema Bimhera Amen. Thank you.